His name is Heston Blumenthal, and he is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet. And this is Journey to the Centre of Food, where we explore everything food-related through the unique perspective of Heston Blumenthal. And today is a special episode because I get to sit back and drink a cup of tea because it's a mailbag episode in which we put all your questions to Heston. Hello, Heston. This is a new one for us, isn't it, doing a mailbag? Yes, I was going to say when you said uh, sit back and have a cup of tea, I said, why change the habit of a lifetime, Jay? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sit back, let everyone else do the work. It's perfect. And as usual, I can see Heston is sitting out in the dappled sunlight of a beautiful Provence garden with the mountains in the background. It's a very nice day out there, it looks like. It's a, yeah, it's a beautiful day. It's a soft. The mistral wind is blowing softly. I was going to say blowing softly in the breeze, but a wind, wind <laughs> blowing softly in the, in the breeze is an interesting thought. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in England, we are joined as ever by our Fapped Up producer, James, who will be keeping us on the right side of facts as much as possible. Hello, James. Do you have a, you have a soft mistral wind blowing through you? Uh, not quite, but it is a lovely day here in Bray. Yes, I can vouch for the sunshine. It's, it's, it's out there. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Good to see you both. So the way this is going to work today is I'm going to cherry pick the best questions that we've had sent over to ask Heston and Heston will do his very best to answer them. One that a lot of people have asked in various different ways, um, but I'll pick one of them is from Hiran Ragor or Ragor. Apologies, I probably don't know how to pronounce your surname, but the question is, Heston, what is your favourite dish or dishes to cook at home? You briefly touched on this in a previous podcast, but I'm curious what you and your family like to eat. Lots of people are interested in this, Heston. They, I, I presume, you know, you obviously have a huge pool of liquid nitrogen and you're constantly flambéing at home. Is that right? Not hey, really. Of course. Uh, well, <laughs> you've just thrown about three or four questions in one there. I, I suppose. So favourite thing to cook, favourite thing to eat, favourite. I think I'm quite similar to many people in that I, I don't, for me, a favourite when it comes to food is in a, is a given moment in time. So I could be really difficult and ask a question back for that question, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's quite good fun asking questions. So what is my favourite f- food to cook at home? So if I then ask you a question, I say, well, when? Breakfast, mid-morning snack, lunchtime, Sunday brunch, afternoon tea, dinner, winter, summer, birthday, friends, family. How much time do you have? You know, there's so many factors. And this, in fact, it's not a guess. I will, I will come round to, 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 to try and answer this question with a bit more clarity. I'm not, I'm not trying to get out of this, but it is, a, in fact, one of the most incredible things about our relationship with food. And human beings' relationship with food is incredibly intimate. I don't believe we ever... It's like we never have one emotion. Our hormones drive our emotions, so our, our body is is always full of a whole hodgepodge of recipe of recipe of different hormones in different balance, and we never have one emotion. We might notice one emotion more than another sometimes, but we, we're, we're full of emotions. And the same thing happens with that when we eat. Sometimes we um, it's normally a mix of many things. It could be because we're hungry, because we really fancy something. It could be social interaction and social gathering. It could be comfort. It could be guilt. It could be distraction. It could be uh, stress-related. There's many, many, many reasons why we eat and we choose to eat the foods we want to eat, which is a fantastic thing. So that's on the eating side. Now, cooking is slightly different. Because if you said, Jay, what would you fancy eating right now? Right now, if you could have anything, a genie in a bottle came along, 
and said, Joey, I grant you <laughs> one dish right now, one mouthful of food. What would it be right now? Chicken curry, obviously. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> so, so if you then decide to cook something, you have to decide, I want the chicken curry. And then you might think, well, okay, this chicken curry is going to take three hours to cook. And you think, well, maybe I don't want chicken curry that much. I might want to get a, get a takeaway. So when we're going to cook, there's lots of other questions that we're going to ask. You know, what ingredients do we need? What ingredients do we have? What about the kit? How much time do I have? Um, so I would say, for me, that I don't have one dish particularly that I love to cook more than anything else i can say however being here in france uh i'm in a village which is nearest town is maybe 15 20 minutes but the local shops only sell what's local and in season and at first i was used to going to the supermarkets in the uk at first here you know it takes a little bit of time to get your head around and then when you start to embrace it it's a wonderful thing so you can't just eat chili whenever you want to all year round or even you know aubergines and courgettes and those summer vegetables and ratatouille is so provencal i would say that the closest thing i could having after ramble to this i will keep the following <laughs> questions i will keep them shorter i promise ish um that if when i've cooked ratatouille many times in my life but cooking it here when I know that the aubergines are from half a kilometre away, the tomatoes and the courgettes and the peppers and the basil and the olive oil and the olives and all of those things are effectively almost from my garden and they've been picked within a day or two. So those vegetables have had the same sunlight and the same wind and the same weather conditions and the same aspect and the same soil um, that I've been walking on and the same sunlight that I've been subjected to. So there's a massive connection in getting those ingredients. And then I think that helps you be more mindful while you're cooking. So I pick up a, an aubergine and I'll, I'll just be aware of what it feels like in my fingers or my thumb and the weight of it and how am I, go, I going to cut it. And, you know, maybe the temperature, maybe it's been sitting in the sun um, on a, you know, in a, in a box outside the the shop or from a market store you know i've had it before where i'm cooking with vegetables that are still warm from the sun and all of these things to be aware of all of those things when you cook is an incredible thing now obviously if you've gone to the supermarket and you're in london you don't have quite the same um maybe the same effect however you only need to think about where those vegetables or those ingredients have come from and that maybe a farmer has lovingly, you know, um, nurtured and cared and cultivated those ingredients. And when you start to think that way, then one vegetable can become much more valuable. So that process of being mindful while you while you're buying, while you're cooking, while you're, you know, you're thinking, you're cooking, you're connecting, is just a wonderful thing. So, in answer to your question, I suppose. <laughs> My favourite thing to cook here in the summer is ratatouille. Lovely. <laughs> there you go. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank uh, you. For <laughs> yeah, that's so, lovely. So I can imagine a problem. So dear listeners, tune in, tune, in, tune in to the answer to this question over the next three months. 
I was sort of also talking, I do this quite a lot. I talk, think and talk. So I, I hear the words come out of my mouth and sort of observe them. And then I, then I can think of how to respond to the words that have just fallen out of my mouth as well. No, that's a lovely answer. I really enjoyed that. I think, I, and I can imagine a province of Ratatouille now you describe it like that. All right, so on to our next question. This is Shorter from, answer. Shorter, well, we'll see. This we'll is see. a good question. This is, this is from uh, Peter J 18. Uh, apologies again for mispronouncing that. Peter J 18. His question is, is there a drink or some food that you've never tried before but would like to try in the future? So what is there out there that you've always dreamed of trying is there anything out there that you haven't you've never had a chance to go and try that's a great question is there a drink yes uh, yes and i I, i've i've it's it's the first time anyone's asked me that question actually so uh, what i've done just now about before i tell you my answer is it's the first thing that came into my head which is what i'm about to say Uh, so if i reflect upon it then i might change my answer so the first thing that came into my head now I'm reflecting on it and thinking if I can find something else. Now the first <laughs> no, come came... on, give us that one. What was your first answer? Blood. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it, I've read about, and uh, my, 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 my dear friend, he was incredible, uh, Adrian Gill, A. Gill, who was, who was, you know, as revered and feared and um, just incredible as a f- food critic that's ever graced this country. Well, obviously I'm in France, so Britain. Uh, Adrian, I remember him telling me a story. He'd just come back from James. Where's the where the Maasai? I'm going to say Kenya. Let me get me. Let it me might just, be. I'll come back to you. Give me two seconds. Okay, have a look. So so Adrian told me he'd just come back from a trip. I think it was to Africa and South Africa, but he had spent a day or two days with the Maasai tribe, and. He said there was a whole sort of coming of age thing where uh, roughly, I, I think, don't take me literally here, but 14 or so, the, 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 the young man has to go and hunt. So trace, track, hunt, kill, cook, and I think cook and prepare and give food to the, to the tribe. And somewhere in that process, I think what they do is they shoot an arrow. I don't know if it's specially made, but into the neck of, a, I think it was a cow doesn't it doesn't the cow doesn't die doesn't fall over but it's an arrow or it's a little thing it goes into a soft part of the neck and then they 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 take the blood so it's warm blood and then they i don't know if they put a cow plaster on it i didn't go that far i just remembered that the result was a gourd so like i think of a, a very old-fashioned squash that's been dried and hollowed out and it's full of warm fresh blood and he said he didn't expect this and he was sitting in a group of with 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 the tribe and they passed it to him and he this gourd stank he said he was retching but he didn't really didn't he felt he didn't have a choice and he sipped this and he said it was creamy velvety one of the most ethereal things that he'd ever tasted and i was so fascinated by this and this fact that the ritual from it and the and the 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 the, the kind of r- the amount of respect they had for the animals that they lived with. Yeah, you know, there was this this funny sort of connection. I just found it. I found it surprising. I found it at first. You think it's a bit shocking, but actually, 
No, it's just very so far removed from anything our culture has. So I, I'd say I'd like to. I wouldn't try and do it myself. I think I'd have to sit. I'd have to be in in the moment and sit with the Maasai, um, and I've maybe going through the process of smelling the disgusting gourd was was gave way to. If it wasn't, if he didn't think it was going to be so horrible, he wouldn't have had the contrast and surprise. I don't know. So that's the first thing that came into my head. What a remarkable answer! I would never have. Imagine that. And James, you, you, you're probably going to correct me on this, but I, I, is it right in some of the areas of Mongolia, some of the warriors used to be able to drink their horse's blood, just not kill the horse? Like you said, if they were in the middle of nowhere, they could drink some of the blood and put, like you said, like a plaster on it or, or some kind of mud, yeah. and it would keep them going if they were really, if they were really struggling or something. I, I, that, but that is, um, that's an amazing answer, Heston. Drinking blood. I don't think we were going to go there. I know, I'm just <laughs> reading here, but the Maasai, yes, we, we were right. They are sort of southern Kenya, northern Tanzania. And in a, in a sort of, a, a, yeah. a, a, I don't know what it was written in, but a doctor visited them in 1935 as obviously part of some uh, research he was carrying out. But he, he noticed that the, basically every day, any lactating women and, and sort of um, growing children were given a daily ration of raw blood. So it's, it's, it is very much part of their culture. Ah. Yeah, I was, we'll I was fascinated by that. So that's, uh, you know, and it actually, it would be, it seems very extreme for us. But in fact, when you dip into the culture of, say, the Maasai tribe and dip into somebody else's culture, it's so, it seems to be that it's something that's so woven into their sort of cultural fabric, really. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's like us having a cup of tea. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it's certainly would feel i'm sure i would love to ask a maasai warrior tribe what was the thing that us us westerners or us brits do culturally that they find very bizarre i remember reading a book by um it's called the awakening ape it's a great book and it's about a guy who was i think evol evolutionary psychologist at uh, harvard or somewhere and he spent a lot of time with tribes and one of the reasons that where the pa the paleo diet and the main reason why the paleo diet doesn't work if it does is that what people forget with paleo diet is part of the paleo diet is connected to our behavior, our activity and our movements. So we, let's go back and eat what cavemen eat, ate, what tribes ate, but let's not do the hunting gathering. And you can't separate the two. So, so you think about it comes back to hormones. You talked about you know, how they give, give blood to lactating women. Now, they have a very different hormone um, kind of level at that time and there's a really big connection with this so our our, our um in hunter gatherers we you know we we tracked animals we climbed trees to get honey that all the body movements were related most of them were related to building property and keep giving giving getting ourselves fed getting wood for the fire and stuff like that and this guy in his book the awakening ape said had a really good point. He said, if you took a, somebody from a tribe, hunter-gatherer, a real pure hunter-gatherer tribe, and you took them to, say, the UK, and you took them to a gym, and you saw somebody working out, pulling these metal slabs with cables and running on a treadmill, they would think, we, we're off our rockers. They just wouldn't understand. It, did not, it does not make any sense. Why you would just go onto this onto this rubber band and run, but get nowhere <laughs> for no good reason apart from to move. I remember once we were 
you and I, I was filming a, a show. Uh, it was about about weddings and things. And, and one of the girls getting married was uh, African. She was British African, but her her grandmother or her great grandmother had never left her tribe in Africa, and uh, it was a big deal. She flew her over for the wedding, and we went to meet her at Heathrow. And it was really you know lovely moment. Her great grandmother came. She's tiny little wizened old lady. She came hobbling out. But the interesting thing she said when we were in the car driving back into London, and this was still on the motorway, you know, the, the quite, you know, what we would consider open air motorways. Yeah. She was looking out the window and she said, "You're always under a roof here." And we are. What do you mean? She said, "You're always under a roof," and she couldn't understand the fact because even on the motorway, she felt like she was enclosed with trees and uh, street lamps, and she said it felt like we were always indoors. And I suppose you're in cars and trains and buses and buildings. And yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, yeah. Wow, wonderful. Peter G18, this is great. This is this is a perfect example of where we end up with some of these questions. Where we go, nobody knows. But that was a, that was a really interesting little sideline you sent us down for that one. Thank you. Um, George Paugi, change of gear here. George Paugi or Pagui, sorry again for the surname pronunciation. He's asked, you know, rewinding you back now a few years, what resources did you use to teach yourself traditional French cooking? And what would you recommend for someone starting out today? So maybe give a little bit of context, Hessen, about how you first learnt to cook uh, and how someone could go about, you know, copying you to this day. My two biggest resources, I would say, was curiosity, number one, which is connected to imagination and memory. So let's put all that in one resource. And the other was dogged determination. So above the fireplace in the hind's head, there's a saying, there's a, there's a phrase in gold leaf. I mentioned this before, actually. It's three, four hundred years old. And it says, fear knocked on the door, faith answered, and no one was there. If you have a belief and your, and your belief is strong enough, then that would drive your curiosity for that belief so imagination isn't isn't enough because if you imagine you then need to turn it into something so i would say in terms of attributes curiosity and belief but with belief comes curiosity and dogged determination there is no substitute for for doing nothing there is no substitute for for trying and trying and trying and if you try with awareness then it's not failure failing in fact is opportunities to learn so at the same time you need it's i think i think it's, it's good to have an understanding of with any craft the basics the technical basics you need the foundation um you know i'm not i'm not saying i'm an artist but if you look at people like from Picasso to Salvador Dali you know, these guys spent thousands of hours um, on their craft so their technical craft the things you do get educated at <clears throat> when, when you learn so when it comes to cooking what I I mean I had this experience down the road from here in this in the restaurants that's, that's still here which was unlike any food experience I'd ever had I didn't know what an oyster looked like let alone tasted like the notion of a Michelin-style restaurant, I had no, I had no concept of it. Um, and so I had the contrast of, of no previous experience of something of that level and then being in this the time, place, setting, which was just incredible. And I fell down the rabbit hole. So I wanted to learn. So what I did was a mixture of a few things. I um, 
I bought books and some of these were in French. I did not, this is where dogged determination comes in. I didn't speak French, so I had a French English dictionary and I translated cookbooks. Word were these word. were these just any cookbook you could get, or was there a specific kind of Bible? Some of the great chefs of France at the time. Right. Then, at the same time, I looked at. I went through. I was never methodical at school, but I went through. There's La Rousse Gastronomique, which is one of the sort of encyclopedias of classical French cooking. So you can look up a beurre blanc or mayonnaise or you know souffle, and they'll give you basic recipes for them that, that are sort of they say textbook ones. And there's other great French chefs like Escoffier. You know, so I looked at those books. I looked at the modern day chef's books. And then I saved up for nearly a year and blew most of my savings on a two-week trip to France. So I'd be reading, I would be cooking, and then I would be eating. And so I would say, what was, what was the most memorable uh, vanilla ice cream that I've eaten? And then I'd look at recipe books, and I would then somehow bridge the gap between the between. I'd follow I'd follow his instructions, but I'd also have my flavour taste memory of what I was looking for. Then that wasn't enough for me, so I, I I then started to ask the questions of why were these ingredients being used in the way that they were, in the quantities that that they were, and why were these techniques being used? And quite often the chefs didn't know why. I think it's just you get told. Yeah, you're not paid to think. This is. The, did you just turn up in a wrong. kitchen then? How did did you how did you did you stage? Well, on that two week trip, how did you do it? Did you just get on a ferry and and, and or had you already booked a place? No, what, what no, did no you I do? drove. I mean, I drove. I was sort of early twenties, so I had a little car. And we drove around, booked in some 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 restaurants, Michelin starred restaurants, and then I had another couple of books which were sort of not restaurant guides. They were food producers guides. So. It could be, you know, in my route between these restaurants, it could be maybe three days driving down and three days driving back. And then on route or just off route, I'd have a look at if I found an amazing tea shop or somebody that made salted butter caramels or a baker or a vegetable farmer that I could go and see. And I'd just go and sit, I'd, I'd go and see and I'd ask loads of questions and make loads of notes. And, and then I'd use my, um, my internal universe, by that I mean my taste, as, a, as, a, as my own personal barometer. So I think whatever anyone does, an answer to this question is that I think it's really important to strike the balance. And when I talk about balance, balance is always a bit of a movable feast. But between the linear framework of... Um, a craft, uh, the building blocks, let's say, of that craft, and how you feel about it and how you interact with that craft. Don't lose the fact that every single human being is, is a magical, incredible piece of machinery. So if we just, if we become a slave to a recipe, then we lose the beauty of cooking and eating. Oh, I say, that's very nice. That's Boom. lovely. There we are, <laughs> George. I hope that answered your question. That was great. I thoroughly, I really enjoyed that. I'm, I'm ready to go on a trip to France immediately to start start questioning things. That's that was great. It appears here we're also sorting out your social life. So Dorothy or Dorothy F. Nielsen says, Heston, we're in San Remo, and we owe you a glass of champagne. She doesn't expand on why she owes you a glass of champagne. Um, yeah. 
One quick question. What is the name of the chicken that you make for Christmas in Provence? And do you have a recipe for how best to cook it? So it's September and she's already thinking the Danes from Barnes is who it's from. And they're already thinking ahead to Christmas. So, um, yeah, what's the, what is uh, the yes. chicken from Hello, Provence? Dorothy. Hello, Dorothy. <laughs> yes. The chicken from Provence. It's not from Provence. It's actually from Bress. B-R-E-S-S-E. And it's a capon. Or chapon, I call it a chapon de bresse, and um, they wrap these chickens after the, the the heads on, the head and neck, but all the feathers are are off, <clears throat> and they wrap it in in like a very tight sort of posh muslin blanket, and when you take it off, the skin of this chicken is like it's like velvet. It's incredible texture. Um, and they only do them around Christmas time, so it's a breast caper, a capon from breast. Why do they leave the head on? Um, I was going to say it's a French thing, but it is. They're quite well. There are there are several reasons for leaving the head on. Um, um, they leave the plumage on the neck, and you've got the um, you've got the um, what they call the the crête de coq, which is the crête is the crest. Which is like the red, you know, the what yeah, are they called in English? Cockscomb, is it? It's the cox, the cockscomb, the comb. And we ate that, didn't we, once in Russia? Didn't we eat that? We might. That I mean, I've cooked them at the duck a lot. Yeah, cockscomb, uh, cock, cockscombs with cod. Actually, was one of the and pea puree and lentils was a was an old fat duck dish with licorice and some other spices. But uh, that's an aside. The French. I mean, if you you go to uh, England France rugby matches. And they used to see French people, they, they'd bring their chicken. Because the, the <laughs> breast chickens, which are the sort of the king of chickens of the world, and they have slightly blue legs, just a tinge, tinge of blue. So you've got the white feathers, you've got the red coxcombs, and you've got the blue. So you've got the red, white, and blue. It's, it's basically the national emblem, animal emblem of France. That's how revered, um, that's how revered these chickens are. And I remember doing a TV show in search of perfection on roast chicken. And we went to Brest. And on the motorway, this is amazing because I have a memory uh, of, um, wonderful memory of a kid growing up in London. And every, occasionally we'd drive out to the country. It was, it was like Windsor Great Park or Virginia Water, somewhere not too far from London. And we would buy, there was a little deli nearby us that sold a baguette. And in those days, baguettes didn't exist in supermarkets. I mean, it was just, you know, mother's pride. So it'd be a baguette and a roast chicken. And I remember having these hot roast chicken buttered baguette sandwiches. And I loved them. So we went to this motorway service station in Brest. And when you come off the motorway, there's a roundabout. And the biggest statue of a breast chicken actually probably there's not many statues of breast chicken so it's probably quite easy <laughs> to get to get that title but a humongous breast chicken on this roundabout and you pull into the petrol station and there's a buffet and you can order half a breast chicken and now these chickens on three mission star restaurants uh, probably you're looking at 60 pounds for a, for a, for a main course at least if you you can wow. go and buy them in smart shops in london and the chicken would probably cost you 50, 60, 70 quid. And there's half a chicken 
on a you just queue up with your tray. I at the time I mean, it was a few years a few years ago. It was like ten quid or something, and you had a pot of roasting juice, and uh, and this breast chicken. It was amazing. I can imagine you loving that, having one of those moments where you just go completely quiet and you're just heads down. Oh, I love that. that. And just the fact oh. that, that it was, an, it was a, now, actually, you can get, I mean, the, the food you can get in motorway service stations compared to even 15 years ago has changed a lot. But that was a revelation for me, the fact that they gave that much kudos to their local chicken. It, the, the motorway service station that was in the middle of that chicken region was a celebration to the most expensive chicken in the world. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, that actually brings us on to an interesting question. Um, thank you, Dorothy. We'll come back to how best to cook it when we do our Christmas episode, which will be coming up when we get closer to Christmas. Yeah, we'll keep that, that champagne uh, cold for me, please, Dorothy. Bobby Cullen, though, and we've had a few people asking this as well. Um, again, everyone presuming that you, you, you only insist upon eating line-caught sushi everywhere you go. Yeah. He says, ever eat McDonald's or KFC on the move when top-class cooking isn't possible if your schedule is busy? And I can speak on your behalf with this one. The amount of service stations and dodgy cafes we've taken to you while filming i can vouch that you'll eat you eat pretty much everything and you don't care you love trying everything don't you no i'll, I'll try anything anything and everything i have had i had probably i don't know six seven eight maybe ten years where i hadn't had a mcdonald's and um the last i didn't realize is it here's an interesting surprising fact for you the french are the per capita are the second highest consumers of fast food and the second highest consumers of McDonald's in the world after America. Never. Yeah. Really? France. Fast yeah. food as in, you, you were talking KFC kind of fast food here. That yeah, well, they, 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 McDonald's biggest market after the States per head is France. It's France. I've never in a million years have said that. I know. Never. And there's, I didn't think there, there were many over there. Oh, there's, there's loads. And there, there are, um, but I did notice, I haven't tried it, the, there's a Burger King at, at the Marseille airport, and I saw a big advert for Burger King with, with Contal... Fromage is like two-year-old aged contel cheese from the Alps. So I can't imagine that in the UK. <laughs> but I, I have had a couple of times in the last six months because um, uh, uh, Stephanie goes occasionally with the kids as a you know surprise as, as, a, as a as a not surprise as a as a treat. And I actually enjoy the last couple of times I've had a McDonald's. I have to say, I enjoy. They're not. They're not stupid. Any, people might not enjoy the thought of eating a McDonald's, but if you eat meat, these food companies are very clever. You know, it's not by chance that they feed. They get make so many people happy. They put all the things in there that we love to eat. However, they're not all the things in there that our little fellas in our gut, our microbes, love. And the last, the couple of times I've, I've enjoyed eating it. And I eat, uh, last one I had was probably two months ago. I ate it mindfully uh, and I enjoyed it. But then it just like sat in my stomach. Yeah, it's the aftermath isn't great, oh. is it? It's, it's the bit, at the time there is a moment, but it's a, it's a fleeting pleasure I find rather, you don't get that lovely feeling afterwards where you look back and in, in, enjoy at the moment. No, but I did enjoy eating it. And, I, and, and, and yes, Eile, I'm I'm not a food snob at all. At all. In fact, I'm a very strong believer in that. And this is one of the big things that I'm going to devote my life to going forward is actually looking at human beings relationship with food. So, for example, I believe that if you drink water. So you walk around with your bottle of water all day long, you drink water, 
because you think if I don't drink my, it's a very fine line to think if I drink my litre of water a day or two litres of water a day, I will be uh, healthy. It's very close to thinking if I don't drink my one or two litres of water a day, I might get ill. Now, if that is in your inside you, if that's your drive for drinking water, then you're not appreciating the water. You're drinking it from a basis of fear. And that, um, that stress, emotion, stress is an emotion. And that stress has a vibration. And stress is very widely accepted medically that stress creates inflammation. And you get ill from stress and anxiety. You can get very, very sick from it. Uh, and so there's some research being done now, which I think is fascinating, into the possibility that a human being's mental state or the awareness of their mental state creates vibrations, which then in turn get um, transferred to the water that we consume. Now, when I say water that we consume, that's what water's in all the food that we eat. So it's not just water in, in the bottle, it's water in food. And Jay, you remember, I, we've done this, I did this thing with you before. It was one of the, for me, one of the most incredible discoveries I've made. You take a glass of wine and use the same hand because it's slightly different in the left and right. So take a glass of red wine and have two sips. The first sip, don't put the wine down between sips. The first sip, you close your eyes and you picture somebody that fills you with love. So you cannot, when you picture this person, you close your eyes and you really, really picture their, their, their face, their body, maybe a moment with them. You can't think negative thoughts. Have a sip. Then, immediately, once you've swallowed that, close your eyes again and picture somebody. We've, we've all got them or had them in our lives that, that, that you can't think positive things about. It's, whether it was rejection or jealousy or anger or frustration or whatever, whatever. But just negative, you can't think positive. So it's the opposite from the first sip. Close your eyes, have a sip. It's a completely different wine. It's it bitter. was amazing. It's it was incredible. Amazing. It's incredible. The difference was remarkable. And I, it was the proper Jedi wine trick you did on me. I, I, it was it's very, amazing. very freaky. Should, anyone at home should definitely try it. So you think what that thought does. Now, this is one for further discussions that we're, work, we, we, we're doing a lot of work on. And it's, it's a very... It's a very fascinating complicated subject but our thoughts and our intentions which is placebo effect and the nocebo so the nocebo is the opposite of the placebo effect what does that mean then so so placebo well, so is you imagine something does you good yes it will be the, it, you you significantly increase the benefit the chances of that being beneficial for you so let's say vitamin there's as many arguments to say vitamin c doesn't doesn't um if you if you measure it on an unemotional level there's as many papers have been written to say it actually doesn't make much difference as there are. However, if you take vitamin C and you, you are so happy to be taking vitamin C and you really feel that vitamin C is going to make a difference, the chances are it will make a difference. However, that's... So is non-SIBO when you believe something's bad for you and it does exactly. you bad? Wow, yes. I've never heard of that. And, and have a look at it. it. It is becoming such a massively studied subject at the moment. And if you bel if if you start if you if you um, and it's more relevant now, especially with you know with the, with the COVID situation, that people are becoming more fearful. And we already live in a world of fear. As our lives, be in some respects, in the Western world, have become food-related, our lives have become more comfortable than ever. But our levels of anxiety are greater than ever. 
and this relationship as foods become easier to get more readily available our levels of anxiety have in also increased to the extent in the next five years easily uh, anxiety and mental mental um, health are going to be the, the biggest killer of any disease by miles by absolute miles this speaks interestingly to the fast food thing though doesn't it i mean the fast food thing now yeah. for a lot of people is vilified in people's minds where if you try it you feel like you're doing yourself the world of bad that's really interesting you're looking into that that mm -hmm. sometimes it may be a case that it, it, it's it's the nace non how do you say it nocebo or nocebo no nocebo n-o-c-e-b-o nocebo no nocebo um and 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 this is what i was saying with say mcdonald's or a, I don't know, a sandwich or Kentucky Fried Chicken or a milkshake. I believe, uh, and this is at the moment, this is a belief, that, but this is what, one of my ambitions is actually to do some research on this. So I, at the moment, I'm putting my chef's hat on and saying, I believe and I'm excited about having this belief because it, it is more, it is, for me, in my head, it makes a lot of sense. That doesn't mean to say it's scientifically provenly accurate because it, it hasn't been yeah. proven yet. That's if, the point of these podcasts is we're getting inside your head and this is how you understand yeah, and just figure out these belief. things. And, and the, the sort of things that make me get out of bed in the morning and get excited about, about my work. I believe that if we, the, more we, the more mindful we, eat, we are when we eat our food, the more moments of mindfulness, the more moments of awareness, the more moments of gratitude, the more moments of... Uh, when I say awareness, you know, of where the food came from and also what are we feeling when we eat it? How many people just shovel food in their mouths and then you say, oh, did you taste the so-and-so? And they look at their plate and the plate's all gone. So I think that the more mindful we are, the less stressed we are when we eat. One person could eat, could eat a Big Mac in a state of stress and, or with placebo and eat Big Mac with nocebo. And our body will process that that food. I'm not necessarily ever suggesting that to eat Big Macs as a diet, but what I'm saying is, one thing that we've, I think we've, forgotten or, not realised that we need to put back into the equation, is it's not just what we consume in terms of, um, swallowing. But we consume energy from others, from sunlight, from pollution, from TV. We that's all consumption and that affects our emotions so our emotional state and the awareness of our emotional state i believe has a major impact on the way that we uh, our relationship with food and how our body processes it and that feels like one of those things that you could really like you say go down the rabbit hole of experimenting and exploring this it, this stay stay tuned because i'm sure there's you, you're going to be discovering things about this along the way and, and and sort of expanding this theory i know we're running out of time give me a couple more and i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to set, try and set myself a target and i might fail abysmally but i'm going to try i apologize to the next couple of questions but i'm going to try answer them as conventionally quickly as possible if that makes any sense no chance go. and no I'm way i wouldn't go. no chance but i wouldn't accept it anyway because i think it's best when you just go off down the rabbit holes we go down okay so one from <laughs> eric doer hello chef you've once said that service today eric, is more is that, hello eric, eric is used it, to work for me is it d-o-e-e-r-r -E -E yeah i'm sure it's eric and he's going to tell me i can tell you he's going to say you once said that service is more important than than, than the food 
Yes, and he he then he he's a, he left. He's a he's now uh, he was a trainer in Lausanne, one of the top hotel restaurant schools in the world. Okay, so Eric, this is Eric, former mate. This is former front of house Major D, 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 D Eric. Yeah. Oh well, that I know Eric, and that explains this question a lot clearer. He says, "Hello, chef. You've once said the service today is more important on food." You can forgive a bad food experience and give a second chance, but when bad service leaves you with a bad taste, it lasts. Can you please develop this theory? Uh, well, I mean, it's the same as what I've just been talking about with the, with the McDonald's. Human connection, emotional connection. I mean, look at this, the, the, the sayings like, left a bitter taste in my mouth, or gut feeling, or sick to the stomach. You know, all, the, all these sorts of, th these types of, 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 of phrases you know, didn't develop by accident. And just like the wine, when you think something negative, that wine becomes bitter. And it's that connection between the brain and the gut. So the kitchen can serve the most beautiful food. But if you've got a front of house that's miserable or offhand or they're not connecting or they're, or they're trying too hard to connect, there's all sorts of things that can happen, that interferes it affects your body's perception <laughs> is there a dog there is there a dog in the background or something is something making like a noise sound like a, a wookie or something. i think he's under the table oh yes no harry's here <laughs> yeah it's my dog i've got my bulldog he's just like i didn't even notice yeah just just we're talking about microbiome and gut and stuff if any of you guys can hear a slight, well, there it goes again, like a, it's, there it goes. My dog, Harry, my bulldog, is um, just under the table, sleeping and snoring. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I've used that, how many times has that excuse been used? Um, but yeah, but it's absolutely, and, and there is a lot of argument to say that you know, after the most intimate relationship a human being has is with themselves, their breath, and the most important thing we have to do to live, number one is breathe, number two is drink water, number three is eat food, number four is sleep. Hence, thanks, Harry. Um, and then we can get about doing the other things we need to do in life. But there's a lot of emerging evidence to show that social connection. If we don't have enough. I, when I say enough social connection, it doesn't mean just how many friends you've got, but the quality of social connection. If we don't have it, there's massive connection between that and depression. This means that the social interaction in restaurants between the front of house team and the, and the, and the diner is very subtle, very subtle and complex, but it makes all the difference. And if the kitchen was to mess up a dish, for example, and the table weren't happy and they complained the front of house should see that as an opportunity to work magic so you turn the problem into a potential situation which is better than if the problem didn't happen in the first place thank you eric and hello eric I haven't seen you for ages jay i remember we did heston's feast and we did the, the first time the meat fruit which went on to serve he served at the at the um uh, at dinner in london in the mandarin and remember the bowl of the bowl of fruit. It had mandarins and apples and grapes. But the Channel Four punchline, I think it was either Greta Skaki or or somebody else, one of the guests at the table. The punchline was Eric presented the bowl, and the plums were made from bull's plums or bull's testicles. Remember we did the, we did a cooking scene with her in it, and it was and the whole purpose of this was Eric in his softly spoken French accent said. 
would madam like one of my big fat juicy plums because he put the bowl in front of her <laughs> a highlight of his career i'd say yeah. possibly the end of his current career now that story is out there <laughs> is service more important than the food now eric i don't know <laughs> Ah, oh, wonderful. Right, we are almost out of time. And unfortunately, we only have we have a very big question to finish on. So w- maybe we'll, we'll we'll try and have small answers to this. But if, as the last question, yeah. um, we should do more Nick, of these questions. I think they're cool. well, we've got a, we've got a lot we haven't got to. So I think we'll have another yeah. mailbag uh, in the near future. So if anyone out there does have any more questions to add to the mailbag, we already have quite a lot. But do send them over to uh, Heston's podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to get to those because this has been really interesting, hasn't it? It's taken us down all manner of different roads. I didn't expect we we're going to be drinking blood blood and and listening to snoring bulldogs so it's um yeah yeah, it's been fantastic to finish with we have a question from nicholas zendrowski who says who is the single most influential person on your success i told you it was a big question i'd say i mean there's been a few if i had a mentor if i had a mentor i didn't really but the closest thing to a mentor i i had was uh, a guy called professor tony blake who put together the third section, the last section of the Fat Duck Cookbook, who was head of flavour division for Furmanish, and he invented the blue pregnancy test and basically packet soup. Very clever guy, amazing guy. So, But it would have to be Harold McGee because when I read the bit about browning meat in his book, on food and cooking, the science and law of the kitchen, and I and he basically said browning meat doesn't keep in the juices. I read that and thought, what? Hang on a second. So everything that I'd heard, read, watched on TV, the amount of chefs that had said seed in the juices, brown the meat to seed in the juices. You mean this isn't correct? And he went on to explain why, and it was really obvious after he explained why. That's when I'd say that was the single most powerful light bulb moment of my life of my working life because then I thought if that if the most biblical kitchen law in fact is nonsense how many other things have I read that are also nonsense and that hence my motto on the coat of arms question everything curiosity thanks to Harold thanks to Harold and that 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 steak bit in his book it changed my life question everything and questions without answers for me they keep us going and on that note we want to say thank you to everyone out there for sending in your questions for heston's answers because that was really really good fun that was brilliant heston thank you so much james thank you as ever for being there for us and also uh thank you everyone for listening to our snoring bulldog that is a unique i think we should try and ask him to do that every week because it's 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 very relaxing listening to a bulldog snoring under the table He's stopped now. Now He really does it for the podcast. He has has sent me to sleep before. (laughs) For now, thank you ever so much, everyone, for your questions. Normal service will be resumed next week. We're going to be delving into another single ingredient, and it's going to be a a good one, actually. So I do recommend you tune in for that. Uh, There may not be much room for people to listen in on it. So um, (laughs) it's going to be... (laughs) You're such a fun guy. so more of that if you can bear it next week uh for now all that's left to do is say thank you james and thank you goodbye heston thank you guys and thank you for your questions everyone